there's nobody really. I don't believe in him. I'm not, I'm not a believer of Jesus. He's just a guy in a book, isn't he? In a fairy tale. In Islam, we have also, we believe in Jesus also. I used to be a really big fan, and now I'm more just focusing on God. He is the risen Christ, risen God. He is alive today, and he lives and dwells in all mankind. He exists. I mean, you know, he's the son of God. He came here to save our sins. He's the savior of the people. And, you know, he was actually a real person who existed, a real man and a real God at the same time. A son of God, I think. I think he's a important person in the history. Well, I suppose he is, yeah, to some people it would be, but to me personally, no, he's not a historical figure. The type of symbol he is invokes a lot of hope and um, passion in individuals. I feel like he's one of the most misinterpreted people these days. I think he was a very clever man. I think he was a, a prophet, but I don't believe in God. I don't believe he was the son of God. Very wise man. I don't know really how I feel about the whole son of God thing and everything, but I believe he was an amazing human being and really cultivated compassion and all the beautiful things about humanity. Jesus, I think it was a man who someone believed because he was a great man. To me, he's my personal savior and my Lord. I love Jesus. He's everything to me. All right, this morning we want to delve into that subject, who is Jesus, and we're going to approach it from a little bit different perspective than just a street take. One of the questions that came up a couple times, uh, is Jesus the only way to heaven uh, is uh, and you, another way to may you may ask that is how do we how do we deal with people when they talk about the exclusivity of the gospel message and so that's what I want to uh, try to get our hands around this morning is this idea of of who Jesus is and is he really really the only way to heaven because everyone has their own take and some th saw him as savior, some as a symbol, some as a wise man, some as a prophet, some as an important person, one guy as a fairy tale. So the question is, who's right? Is Jesus the son of God, the savior, or is he merely a symbol? Is he one way to heaven of many, or is he the only way? And we've got to wrap our hands around that because we live in a world that has a lot of different ideologies about uh, religion and about the gospel. And so let me just share a couple of them. Uh, I read an article by Bruce Ware, uh, professor at Southern Seminary, and he was talking about pluralism because really pluralism pervades our culture. And uh, pluralism would believe that there are many paths to God. This would come out of the Oprah concept, but that, but there are many paths to God and Jesus is only one of them. And, and since salvation can come through other religions and other religious leaders, it surely follows that people would not have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And that's pluralism. There's a secondism, uh, you might call inclusivism. And that, uh, that ideology believes that Jesus has done the work for salvation. But if you just believe uh, in God's creation or maybe even some things about your own religion, you can still be saved. Even, and they would say even though Christ is the only Savior, 
people do not have to know about or believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's inclusivism. And then, of course, there's postmodernism, which really, really pervades our culture. Uh, all these things get hard to under, explain and understand. But John MacArthur writes this about postmodernism. He said uh, that the reality is whatever the individual imagines it to be. That means that what is true is determined subjectively by each person. And there is no such thing as objective, authoritative truth that governs or applies to human universality. Well, we live in a postmodern culture, and they want to tell us that there's no such thing as objective, absolute truth. There's no way you can say to them that, that this is right and this is wrong. And that's true. You know, that's why we have such issues with, with uh, you know, the, the biblical view of marriage and just so many different things because uh, the postmodernists would say, you don't have a right to say your way is the right way because they don't believe in truth. And at the end of the day, and this is kind of the last comment that he makes, he says, but what really underlies the postmodernist belief system is an utter intolerance for every worldview that makes any universal truth claims, particularly biblical Christianity. So postmodernism would say that it's not, you know, there's no way that there's one specific truth. Especially that being the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's atheism, and we all know that atheism, uh, they believe that uh, really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus because there's no God in any way. And then there would be a fifth group that we'd talk about this morning. That's called exclusivism, and that is uh, exclusivism is the belief that indeed Jesus is the one and the only way to the Father and ultimately to eternal life. Now, all of these pervade our culture. Postmodernism is everywhere. Uh, there's some inclusivism out there. There's some exclusivism. I'm an exclusivist, and, and I'm going to explain that from the Scriptures, but I'm going to define it a little more clearly at the end if, if, uh, if God leaves. I think it will help us make some sense of it. But then there's, I mean, this pluralism is so prevalent in our culture because everybody, you know, we, the people are religious, just a lot of them don't want a relationship with Jesus. And so there's a lot of pluralism, there's a lot of stuff out there. So the question then is, who's right? I mean, who's right? Are there many ways to God or is there only one? And if, if there is only one and it is Jesus, how do you explain to the postmodernist mind or to the pluralist mind, or to the even to the atheist mind, how do we explain to them logically that Jesus is the only way? Or better yet, how do you talk to your friend at school or your neighbor, or maybe your grandkid who struggles with the very idea that God would send people to hell, a loving God would send people to hell just because they don't believe? In Jesus. So how do we make that case? Is God fair? Is God fair to reject people that don't come to him in the name of Jesus? Is God fair to do that? Are Christians, are we fair to say to someone that believes in Buddha or karma or you name it, is it fair of us to say to them, your way is not the true way. Is, is that fair? Are we, 
Are we narrow-minded, intolerant, insensitive people because we say that Jesus Christ is the one and the only way? And those are questions that we have to wrestle with. Because those are questions that people on the outside are asking. And you may be here with us this morning, and you may not yet be a believer in Christ. And that might be some of the same questions that you're asking. How can you be so arrogant uh, and say that, well, Jesus is the only way? Well, I, I hope this morning to take a tour through the Scriptures and to build a defense of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I'm convinced when, when we understand, when we really understand who Jesus is, we can understand the basis for him being the one and only way to heaven. So we're going to look in John's Gospel, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Why don't you stand with me? We're just going to read one verse this morning, but it's a, we could probably quote it. But we're going to honor the Lord by reading his word together. Uh, John 14, verse 6. I tell you what, let me just... Let me just read the first six verses just to give us the context. We read this verse a number of weeks ago when we came home to Wimberley. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going uh, Jesus talking about heaven. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, I just, I, I bow my heart before you. I invite your spirit to fill me and anoint me as, a, as we open the word this morning and as I speak. God, I pray that we would be able to wrap our hands around uh, how we know that we know that Jesus is the one and only way. And Father, we'd be able to defend that. Not so much defend that, but we'd be able to understand and explain that to those that come into our path. So we'd be able to communicate the truth of the gospel. Uh, to those around us. So God, would you come this morning and speak to our hearts? Father God, for the, for the person in the room that maybe has not yet made up their mind about Jesus, for the person in the room that, that might be angry or, 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 or think that you're unfair or unkind or narrow-minded, God, for that person, I would just simply ask you, God, to open the eyes of their heart that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so, God, open your word to us, and when you do, we'll honor you, we'll praise you, and give you the glory. And I ask it in the strong name of the one and only, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for honoring his word. Stand with me. As I said, the key to understanding the exclusivity of Jesus uh, is to understand, to really understand who Jesus is. He's more, of a, more than a symbol and a prophet and a teacher and a good man, he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. Now, what I want to do this morning is, there's no way we can tackle this whole subject and cover everything in any one sermon. Uh, but what I would like to do is I would like to identify about four attributes in Jesus' uh, Jesus's life or four attributes of Jesus that, uh, that help build a case for him as the Savior, as the Son of God. And if he's the Savior and the Son of God, then he is the sacrifice 
the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so let's just delve into these four. We'll see where we get this morning. First of all, let's just talk about, now this is, again, it's not an exhaustive list, so don't think this is a, you know, part, you know, uh, just the whole book, it's not at all. But let me just give you four thoughts. First of all, Jesus was a historical person. Jesus was a historical person. Any defense of the exclusivity of Christ begins with an understanding that he was indeed a historical figure. In fact, not everyone on the interview believed that he actually existed. Most of them did. But there were one, I think there was at least one that, that wasn't sure. Uh, I think it was Ice Cream Boy there with the, with the ice cream cone that said... Uh, he really believed that Jesus was a fairy tale. He just some creature in a book. Now, few intelligent people would even suggest that Jesus didn't exist. In fact, Dan's story in his work, Defending Your Faith, and I'll quote, says, We have already seen that the Bible was written by men who personally knew Jesus or his apostles and therefore recorded the facts of Christ's life based on first-hand testimony. And then he goes on to identify some extra-biblical sources. Obviously, the Scripture talks about the historicity of Jesus, but, uh, but the Roman historian, I think it was Cornelius Tacitus, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, mentions Jesus. Then you also have the, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, who clearly these guys, these are noted, respected, intelligent historians of, of the Jewish culture and of the Roman culture, and they acknowledge that Jesus existed and that his movement existed. The evidence is so great for the historicity of Jesus that few scholars would even question. In fact, the story says even Jewish, uh, even Jewish and atheistic critics would agree that Jesus Christ really existed. So, so honestly, the historicity of Jesus is not a question. You can't really say, well, Jesus, he didn't exist. He was a fairy tale. Now, you can say, well, he's not who he said he was. You can argue that he's not who he claimed to be. But to try and argue that, well, Jesus really didn't exist, he's a fairy tale, goes against all historical evidence. Now, so the historicity of Jesus is, is obvious. Now, the question is, does that mean that he's the one and only way? Well, heaven's not. Just the fact that he existed doesn't mean that he's the one, the only way to heaven. But it does give us a foundation to build a case for the exclusivity of Jesus. So first of all, we would, the first attribute is the historicity of Jesus. In other words, he was a historical figure, a true historical figure. As the one fellow said, he was all man and he was all God. Now, the all man is obvious because he was historical. Now, the question is, was he all God, that's the real question that we need to get to. And so the second uh, attribute that I want to talk about this morning is that Jesus possessed the characteristics of God. He, he was a historical man, but the scriptures tell us that he was indeed uh, the, the exact representation of God. Now, let me just say, and I didn't mention this earlier, obviously when we deal with these messages, we are dealing with the scriptures as the source of authority for life and practice. And so, if you were with us two weeks ago, we did a message on the reliability and the infallibility of the Bible. That's the premise, that the Scriptures are, are, are God's true and revealed Word. And if you, if you question that or you wonder about that, uh, just jump online. There's a message two weeks ago on the reliability of the Scriptures. But if, if the Scriptures are true, and they are, 
Then let's look at what they say about the Jesus in terms of possessing the characteristics of God. Well, let me just give you a couple ideas. First of all, uh, Jesus was omniscient, just like God is omniscient. In other words, Jesus knew all things. Even in his human state, the scriptures suggest that, that he knew all things. If you will, uh, go back to Luke chapter 6. Go back to Luke 6, and then we're going to work our way back to John. Luke 6, verse 8. Listen to what, um, listen to what the Lord, what the Word says. It says, but Jesus knew, but Jesus knew what they were thinking, talking about the Jews, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then if you look in, over in 11, verse 17, I believe it is, Luke 11 in verse 17, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. So Jesus looked out over the crowd. He knew. He knew their thoughts. As a matter of fact, go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Interesting, verse 23 says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the, at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But listen to this statement. It says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And so Jesus, first of all, the first characteristic of God that he possesses is, is this idea of omniscience omniscience. He knows all things, just like God knows all things. That, that, that's, you, you know, that whole idea um, of God knowing all things is interesting. And I, and I probably shared this with you before, but, you know, being a preacher, you know, people, when they find out you're a preacher, they're, you know, you play golf with them and they have, a, they have one vocabulary and then they find out you're a preacher and then they have another one. And they're like, oh, I, oh, sorry, I didn't know you were a reverend. I'm thinking, God's, God, not only does he know your voice, he knows your heart. I, I'm really not the guy you got to worry about. Right? You know what I'm saying? But, but this idea that, that, uh, that God is omniscient and he knows all things. And the Bible says that Jesus is omniscient because he possessed the same character of God. But secondly, not only was Jesus omniscient, uh, but he's also omnipresent. Omnipresent, Matthew 28, 20 says, um, at the end of the Great Commission, he says, and I will be with you always, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so, and a lot of people say, yeah, but that's talking about spiritual. Remember the story? Remember the story in John chapter 1 when he's calling the disciples and in, uh, in, in it's uh, James goes and gets uh, Peter, I think it is, or and Andrew, and then they go and get Nathaniel. And Jesus says, that, and Nathaniel comes and he, he says, could anything good come out of Galilee? And Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And he was like, this dude's real. And he said, surely you're the son of God. Jesus saw him where he was. He's, om he's omnipresent. Just like God is omnipresent. And we find that often with, with Christ. And so he has that characteristic of God. He's, he's omnipresent. He's, he's omniscient. And perhaps the, the, the most compelling reason that we would say he has the same characteristics of God is of his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Have you, have you really sat down? If you sit down and see what the Scripture says about Jesus, 
about the omnipotent power that he has? In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, it talks about how he is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians. It's probably going to come on the screen, but I want you to go in your Bibles to Colossians 1, 16. It says, for by him, talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of the universe. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning and that he was creator. And then if you turn all the way over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 Interest, another interesting passage where it talks about uh, Christ. Look in uh, verse 2. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom, look at there, and through whom he made the universe. Again, he's the creator. Now, let's read on. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, by his powerful word. So he's the creator of the universe. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And then when we, when we continue to evaluate his life, what we'll discover is that he's the controller of the universe. Jesus has control. When you read the gospels, it's just amazing. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He calmed the seas. He fed the hungry. I mean, when you look at the, the, the sheer power, the physical power that he had over creation. People would argue that, that Jesus created. Listen, when you make something, you can control it. And he saw the wind and he said, be still. And what did it do? It went still. He saw the sea and he said, and it was raging. And he said, see, be still. What did it do? It's still. He broke two fish and five loaves and fed 5,000 plus men, or plus women and children. He said to Lazarus, come out. He called him Lazarus so everybody else wouldn't come out too. That's right. Because he, listen, he's omnipotent. He possesses all the characteristics that God. Why? Because he's the exact representation of the nature of God. He is, he, he was 100% human, but he is 100% God. Creator, sustainer, and controller of the universe. And so, so here's what we figured out so far. Jesus is historical. The historicity of Jesus is true. Secondly, we figured out that Jesus possessed the characteristics of God. And then number three, the third attribute that we'll talk about is, is that Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm the way. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but that's pretty, that's pretty brash. That's pretty arrogant. That's pretty, you know, whatever. I remember, I remember they used to, this is a poor analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and share it because it's football season. But, uh, you know, Joe Namath came out and talked about how they're going to win the Super Bowl and everybody called him a braggart and all that good stuff. This has been, what, 40 years ago, 30 years ago? Uh, but somebody said, I remember, I just remember as a kid hearing somebody say, you know, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. 
Jesus can back it up. He made the universe. He holds the universe in his hands. He controls everything by, his, by the word of his mouth. Just by, by way of commandment. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so let's just examine his claims because a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus really didn't say that. Well, yeah, he did. And he said it more, more than once. Uh, in fact, you don't need to turn there, but you'll, let me just read this verse. I won't, while I'm reading, you find John chapter 10. But in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said this. He said, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, that sounds exclusive, doesn't it? That there's a narrow gate. Because listen to this. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. And so Jesus makes that statement. He says, listen, there's this broad road that says, hey, everybody can go. Just believe, just love, just whatever. Jesus says, no. That's a broad road. It leads to destruction. But there's a narrow gate that leads to life. And then in John chapter 10, if you're there, look at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. Now, he said narrows the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Now, watch this statement. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only come, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to them and have life and have it to the full. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And so very clearly, Jesus says, I am the way. It's, it's not arrogance when it's true. In fact, it's the most loving the most loving thing Jesus can do is to tell people the truth. You know, if, if, we were, if we were perishing, if we were down in the canyon of a river and the floods were coming and there was one way to the top, one, and someone said, there's the way up, take it. It might be narrow-minded if there's six trails. But if there's only one that gets to the top, man, the most loving thing you can do is put people on the right trail. Jesus says, I'm the right trail. I'm the way to the top. And, and not only did Jesus claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, the gospel writers, John the Baptist, barely knew Jesus. Remember, he had to send and ask, are, are you the one? Remember, he, when John was in prison, he sent some of his followers. He said, go ask Jesus, are you the guy or are we to expect somebody else? So, so he didn't know him well, but listen, listen to what, um, what he said about Jesus. John 3, verse 36. This is what John the Baptist had to say. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So think about this. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. And then if you go to Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter, the first preacher... Uh, the founder, if you will, the, of the church movement, along with John, uh, Peter said, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be 
saved. And so then we got John over in 1 John chapter uh, 5, I think it's verse 12. says, whoever has the Son has the life. And then if you read the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul would say there's one mediator between God and man. There's one mediator. One. One mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And so think about this. John the Baptist was an exclusivist. Peter was an exclusivist. John was an exclusivist. The Apostle Paul was an exclusivist. Why? Because Jesus is the way. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Now here's what's really interesting. Uh, many people talk about this. C.S. Lewis talked about it. Dan Story in his book, Defending Your Faith, talks about it. A lot of people talk about it. The, the, the issue is a lot, what a lot of people want to do with Jesus is they want to, they want to make Jesus a great teacher. They say, oh, he was a great prophet. Oh, man, he was a great teacher. One of the guys on film just said, you know, he was, he was, he was a good guy. Good teacher. But that's really not an option. Let me just share some thoughts with, uh, from, from Dan's story in his book. He said there's, there's a trilemma argument that you want to pose to people. There's three options for Jesus. Let me share with them real quickly. Option one, Jesus says he is God, but he knows that's not true, so he's a deceiver. Or number two, Jesus really thinks he's God, but he's not. So that makes him a madman. Or number three, Jesus claims to be God because he really is God. Now, here's here's the thing. Jesus cannot be a great moral teacher. Here's why. He claims to be God. And if he ain't God, he's lying. So he can't be a great moral teacher. Either he's Lord or he's a liar. Or he's a lunatic because he's confused. So the only option we have, when you take the biblical evidence and you look at what Jesus says about himself and you look at what the scriptures say about Jesus, you got to make a call. Either he's a liar, either he's a crazy madman lunatic, or he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's one of those three. There's no, you just can't say, well, you know, he's just a great prophet. No, no, he's not. Because if what he says isn't true, it's just not true. And so that's the third attribute. Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Now here's a question. Do you believe he's a liar? Do you believe he's a lunatic? Or do you believe that he's the Lord that he says that he is? That's the that's the million dollar question. What do you believe? Remember, remember, remember he asked the disciples one time. He says, he says, who do the people say they am? And they come up with all these different things. And then he says, he says to Peter and the disciples, he says, but who do you who do you say they am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And so this morning, who do you? Who do you say he is? One other attribute, just quickly. I, I don't have time. If we had time, I'd like to talk to you about uh, 
you know, we could talk about the miracles of Jesus and how they uh, authenticate his ministry. We could talk about the fulfilled messianic prophecies. And, of course, we could talk about his resurrection and subsequent appearances to to women and and, and all those different things. But there's one other attribute about Jesus. And really, this uh, this one sets him apart. This one sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And that's simply this. Jesus solved the sin problem of man that nobody else could solve. Jesus solved the sin problem. And I, I, to me, this is the most compelling. Uh, Dave Cover, in his work, he says, he says, let's not lose sight of why Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only one who actually does something about our sin. You see, the other religions, they say, they either tell their followers, don't sin, or they tell their followers, atone for your own sin, or they might even go so far as to say that uh, sin is an illusion, but no other religion has an answer to sin. And the Bible says, listen, the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which means that all of us are going to die spiritually. In no amount of believing in illusion, no amount of trying to save ourselves, no amount of trying not to sin is going to solve that issue. And so what did God do? The Bible says the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God made provision before the foundation of the world. Jesus solves the sin problem. That nobody else, that nothing else could solve. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll get uh, theological and then we're going to bring this to a conclusion. Romans 3 verse 21. Paul writes, he says, But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness... From God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand Unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And you say, man, that's really deep. What, what does all that mean? Here's, here's what that means, very simply. God's holiness demands payment for our sin. God's holiness demands payment for sin. God's mercy up until this time had delayed the payment for sin. In God's grace, on Calvary's cross, delivered the payment for our sin. Jesus became a sacrifice of atonement. Now you say, uh, if you have the King James, it uses that really big word, propitiation. Anybody got that? You got that in your Bible, propitiation? You know what that means? What it means for Jesus to be a sacrifice of atonement, for Jesus... uh, to be the propitiation for sins, it means that Jesus turned aside God's wrath against our sin. You see, because God's holy, somebody's got to pay for our sin. No other religion has a solution. They say, don't sin. They say, it ain't sin. 
They say, take care of your own sin. But Jesus says, I'll take your sin. And I'll bear it on the cross. And in exchange, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll give you my forgiveness. And you can become a child of God. You see, he's the only solution for sin. No other religion has got an answer. No other religion has an answer. So let me ask you this morning. Has Jesus, have you given your sin to Jesus Christ? Have you come to the cross and trusted him to be your Lord and Savior? You know, uh, a lot of people say, oh, but pastor, that's so exclusive. No, in reality, there's nothing exclusive at all about the gospel. Because see, for, uh, for something to be exclusive, it means that only certain people can get in. Uh, Augusta National is an exclusive golf club or fraternity. I think they finally let two women in a couple of weeks ago. That's exclusive because not everybody can get in. But the gospel is not exclusive at all. In fact, go back to verse 22, Romans 3. It says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this statement. To all who believe. To all who believe. There's nothing exclusive about the gospel. The gospel says whosoever will can come. It's for everybody. The world says we're exclusivists. No, no. We're, we're inclusivists. We're saying, hey, Jesus died for you. Come to Jesus. He'll give you life. That's not exclusive. That's telling the truth. That's all it is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through Him. There's just no other way. I mean, I, I, you know, if there was been another way, God wouldn't have killed his own son. But there's no other way. And so let me ask you, and we're done. Have you found the way to God? His name is Jesus. You come to him by repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in him. Have you, have you personally, given your life to Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking if you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic or Assembly of God or what a non-denominational Bible church. Church doesn't matter. Have you given your life to Jesus through repentance and faith? Have you done that? And it's either yes or no. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Let's bow together. Heads are bowed all over the auditorium. Eyes are closed. Let me, just, let me just get right in your wheelhouse for just a minute and let me just ask you, have you, have you repented of your sin, turned away from your way of living and turned to Christ and placed your faith and trust in Him? Can you point to a time? You don't have to give it. You don't have to say it was this day at this hour. Can you point to a time where you gave your life to Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, I would ask you this morning to come to Jesus. Whosoever will can come. All who believe can be made righteous in Jesus Christ. Would you be willing this morning to invite him to come live in your heart 
and to be your Lord and Savior. If you say, yes, Pastor, that's me. I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Would you just pray this prayer? Would you just say to him, Lord Jesus, today I realize that you're the king. You're God. You died for me. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin. I place my faith and my trust in you. Come live in my heart. Give me a new life. Give me a new start. And help me to live for you, Lord Jesus. Friend, the Bible teaches that if we will call upon the name of the Lord, if we will confess him with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And he'll turn aside God's wrath, and we'll be forgiven. And we'll go to heaven forever. Have you given your life to Jesus? Would you do it today?